Welcome, everybody, to the Pacific Century, uh, where the Hoover Institution allows me and Misha Oslin to host a podcast on the 21st century, which may be the Pacific Century, where China may be poised to become America's greatest rival for global power and influence. Misha and I will broadly address developments in China and Asia. In our podcast, we discuss the latest politics, economics, law, and cultural news with a focus on U.S. policy in the region. Misha, what do you think of that new introduction that's completely different than the ones from the past? I was going to say, John, it sounds like you were reading something that that maybe Scott had written for you. It's so much more professional than what we usually do. Believe it or not, I think that's what Apple Podcasts say about our podcast. I had no idea that somebody had written a completely different description of our podcast. Much better than the one we wrote for ourselves. They should probably host it, too. So today we have a very special guest, our friend Peter Berkowitz. Uh, Peter is the Tad and Diane Taub Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And he, I hate to say it, in his long and varied career, he has been progressing lower and lower from jobs of less and less importance. He started out as a professor of political theory at Harvard University. Then he became a law professor at George Mason University. And now, finally, he has become the head of the policy planning staff in the Department of State, where, where, well, he's on leave from the Hoover Institution. Peter, welcome to the Pacific Century Podcast. John, it's great to be with you, and it's great to be with Misha. Thanks for having me. Well, John, we are uh, we are thrilled to have Peter, not just a friend, but a colleague. Uh, and as you know, uh, Peter's in D.C., I'm in D.C., uh, so many of our colleagues uh, go in and out of government, and it's always wonderful when we can catch up with them, uh, not only because it gives us an insight into what they're doing, but sometimes it's because they have uh, added materially to uh, American foreign policy or whatever type of policy, not only through the the type of interagency process, uh, but often through intellectual products. And that's actually what Peter has done. And one of the real reasons, Peter, we wanted to catch up with you, not just to hear what you've been doing for the past year or so since you disappeared from (laughs) our climbs, but um, because... Over the transom, everyone about a month or so ago received a copy of a truly important paper that the policy planning staff put out called The Elements of the China Challenge. Um, now, there have been a lot of papers on China that have been put out over the past couple of years. We've talked about a bunch of them. Uh, we've interviewed some of the people who have who have written them. They will undoubtedly continue to proliferate. In some ways, you know, we're we're making up for lost time because there were years when we didn't focus on this issue, and and the types of papers that we should have had were not being written, and now they are. But that's also different from having what might be considered a capstone paper uh, from the U.S. government, like. The Elements of the China Challenge, which goes along with a very long, uh, if we can put it, history of papers coming out uh, of the administration uh, on the strategic policy of the United States, of course, the national security strategy, national defense strategy, uh, and an Indo-Pacific strategy from Department of Defense. But what you've done is a little bit different. Um, I I would say a lot of those other uh, papers, while important and interesting, were things that we were a little bit more familiar with coming out of, of, of 
previous administrations in general, uh, the, the general attempt to explain what a policy is going to be. You took a much bigger look. You took a much more scholarly look at the issue. And we wanted to start off by, by asking you to just give us a little bit of the background on the elements of the China Challenge paper, uh, maybe briefly what it is, and then we'll get into specifics, of course, but also why did you do it and why did you do it now? Uh, happy to address those big questions, uh, Mishin. In the first place, I should say, among other things, we certainly um, we built on the work of, uh, of a number of scholars very much including your uh, your own work on China, work that's been developing, especially over the last decade. Um, but I can I can go back to uh, when I was uh, named director of policy planning, summer of 2019, about 18 months ago, and actually identify um, three sort of um, uh, sources for uh, for the policy planning staff's work on this paper. One was. Uh, the general reorientation that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had affected in the State Department. When, uh, when Mike Pompeo became Secretary of State roughly spring 2018, um, he made it his business to let the State Department know that, uh, in his opinion, the greatest challenge that the United States faced was uh, China, China's threat to freedom, uh, and that American foreign policy should revolve around this challenge. As we'll discuss, this doesn't mean turning uh, America's back on the world. Far from it, because the China challenge is playing out in uh, every region of the world. So there was that. There was Secretary Pompeo saying that, uh, you know, my first thought upon rising in the morning and my last thought upon going to sleep at night is China. So this provided a kind of direction, a, a direction, the direction, uh, a focus for the policy planning staff. Second, um, as I presume uh, many of my predecessors have done, um, upon assuming a position, I went back and read uh, probably the most famous documents um, produced by a State Department official, these are the long telegram that uh, career Foreign Service Officer George Kennan penned from Moscow in 1946, and his follow-up article in uh, Foreign Affairs at the Sources of uh, Soviet Conduct in 1947, uh, to see what I could learn. Um, and several, several features of those writings uh, had a big impact on me as I was thinking about tasks for the policy planning staff. One... Uh, Kennan emphasizes in both articles, both writings, that if you want to understand the Soviet challenge, you have to look at both ideology and circumstances, ideas and interests. In other words, you must reject uh, the facile but very common distinction, you know, in, uh, in, in the academic study of uh, foreign affairs and international relations. Are you an ideas guy or are you an interest person? It's the interaction. Second, uh, Kennan emphasized that the Soviet Union, uh, as, the, as the principal threat to freedom in the world in the mid-1940s, late 1940s, was driven, had conduct that was driven by not one but two sets of ideas, Marxism-Leninism on the one hand, and a certain interpretation of 19th century Russian nationalism. Uh, and the third feature of the articles that had a big impact on me was the conclusion of both. Actually, um, 
Kennan's positive program in both of these uh, writings is, um, uh, is not well developed. But what he emphasizes in both is that the United States can meet the challenge to freedom presented by the Soviet Union, provided the United States remains true to what is best in American traditions. So taking these three things, look at ide ideology and circumstance. Uh, even though you're dealing with a Marxist-Leninist power, don't forget about nationalism, despite the tensions between the two of them, and that uh, American foreign policy really is dependent upon America uh, remaining true to its principles at home. Uh, this informed uh, the work of the policy planning staff. And then the third origin within uh, the policy planning staff's work was a request I sent out to members, I guess it would have been November of 2019. Uh, as you know, as your listeners know, policy planning staff um, is part of the secretary's office. And our, our job is to keep the secretary apprised of the larger picture. Well, so we have experts covering uh, all regions of the world and various international functions, international organizations, science and technology, economics, and so on. In any case, I asked each member to write a three to five page memo, just sketching uh, China's conduct in his or her area of expertise. I received back about 25 memos, each a very detailed count of very significant inroads that China, that is the Chinese Communist Party, which is governed by the Chinese Communist Party, the very serious inroads and the very serious threats to freedom that China posed in every region of the world, in every functional area. So uh, uh, with this, I had the basis in China's conduct, or we had the basis to, uh, to proceed with our work on the elements of China's conduct. I can, I've gone on too long for now, but just to give you a very brief overview of the paper. In the first part of the paper, we, uh, we explain why uh, the United States has overlooked the China challenge for so long, and the China challenge being not merely China's quest for preeminence as a great power, that's typical of a great power, but uh, China's efforts to transform world order, the established international order, to serve its uh, per peculiar brand of authoritarianism. The second part of the paper, uh, we look at the elements of China's, um, uh, we, we look at China's conduct specifically, authoritarianism at home, schemes of economic co-optation and coercion abroad, efforts to change international institutions from within, and the development of a world-class military. In the third part, we look at the intellectual sources of China's conduct. As I've already indicated, these sources are both Marxism-Leninism on the one hand and a, an extreme interpretation of Chinese nationalism on the other. In part four, we review uh, the vulnerab vulnerabilities of uh, China, both those endemic to all authoritarian regimes, those specific to uh, People's Republic of China. And in the fifth part, we sketch a, um, uh, a framework for securing freedom in the face of the China challenge. So, Peter, uh, first of all, the paper is uh, available online. Uh, if people go and, and uh, uh, simply uh, search for uh, the elements of the China challenge and, and State Department and, and policy planning, and they should go and read it. Um, there are parts, of course, that, that we've seen in, in other, um, you know, other papers that have come out or in even 
think tank papers and academic papers and the like. Um, but there's a very deep dive uh, in particular uh, and in the third section into the intellectual sources of, of Chinese conduct. And I just want to talk about that a little bit. You identify two in, in particular, Marxism-Leninism of the CCP and then Chinese nationalism. Um, and I, I, I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about your view uh, of both of those, it, particularly as we grapple with the idea of taking China's ideology, and when I say China, I'm talking about the party here, I'm talking about um, the government, but but the, the party state, taking its ideology seriously, which many people find hard to do. Uh, they, they still think this is the end of history. It's the end of the Cold War. It's over. Uh, that's just, you know, Dr. Strangelove type stuff, and no one believes in it. Um, but it's a, it's a core part uh, of your paper. So maybe you could tell us a little bit why we need to pay attention to both, and, and in fact, the interplay between the Marxism-Leninism and the Chinese nationalism. Uh, happy, happy to do that. It's an excellent question. You know, um, one reason we should be paying attention to ideas is because the failure to pay attention to ideas is in part what um, what caused us to overlook the, the China challenge. You know, for decades, we thought either some people thought in the United States that um, uh, because the end of the history thesis, because the world is uh, all the world is tending to liberal democracy and politics and free market economics, that um uh, that all we need to do is uh, is open up the uh, open up international institutions to the Chinese Communist Party, incorporate China into the world economy, and somehow the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party will either see the light of day or just wi- willy nilly will become liberalized and democratized. As you as you know as well, a scholar of these matters, there's also a thesis out there among the political scientists that economic liberalization, economic opening up, which did, did happen in China, late 70s, early 80s, of necessity brings political liberalization. Um, well, the Chinese Communist Party actually very consistently has insisted that economic liberalization, what we call economic liberalization or opening up of the economy, will not bring uh, liberal democracy. Uh, they have spoken about uh, famously hiding their capabilities and biding their time as they modernize, as they develop their economy, as they have the power on the world stage to achieve their ends and goals. What are their ends and goals? Well, actually, the Chinese Communist Party has been um, quite, uh, quite frank, reasonably frank, at least, in announcing their uh, aims and goals, certainly um, uh, Certainly, General Secretary Xi Jinping has been uh, quite frank about that. The biggest reason for paying attention to their ideas is because it makes sense of their conduct. Um, uh, we t- too often we have experts who look at China in the Indo-Pacific, and they conclude, ah, well, China's behaving as a great power um, would in the Indo uh, would in the Indo-Pacific, and they stop their analysis there. But if they both engaged in the empirical analysis of China's conduct in Africa, in the Middle East, in Europe, in in the Western Hemisphere, and then look at the ideas that explain that conduct or in which she sets out the reasons for China's reach around the world, uh, well, the entire conduct takes on a different cast, a, uh, a different hue, starting with government at home. 
Now, we look at how China governs, uh, I should say, how the Chinese Communist Party governs at home. It is a one-party repressive dictatorship. It's built on digital surveillance, indoctrination, the creation of uh, concentration camps for religious and ethnic uh, um, minorities. Ideological indoctrination is core, is core of what the, uh, what the party does. In engaging in all these activities, the party is, is following in the steps of both Marxist-Leninist practice of the 20th century and Marxist-Leninist dogma. So if some people think, great, let's stop with Marxism-Leninism, that explains one-party rule. And it also explains, to some extent, China's conduct abroad. After all, the Soviet Union, too, a Marxist-Leninist state, sought a transformation of world order consistent with, um, consistent with the requirements of socialism. But for the Soviet Union, the center of world order would be Moscow. For the Chinese Communist Party, the center of world order is to be Beijing. What does Marxism, what does uh, Orthodox Marxism-Leninism say about where the center should be? Well, for Orthodox Marxism-Leninism, there is no center. It's a universal classless society. Um, that the Soviets chose Moscow and that the CCP chooses Beijing already reflects something distinctive about their different, uh, about their different nationalisms. Moreover, uh, there's nothing in uh, standard Marxism-Leninism that requires the Chinese Communist Party to uh, indoctrinate the people of China, 1.4 billion strong, with a sense of the uh, cultural and institutional superiority of the Chinese. There's nothing in standard Marxism-Leninism that says that uh, China, um, that Hong Kong, the Taiwan, vast swaths of the South China Sea um, always have belonged to China and always must belong to China, especially in regard to the South China Sea, way beyond um, uh, what international law recognizes. Um, and uh, and, uh, and there, one could provide other examples of China's, uh, China's conduct. For example, its focus on the, um, the century of humiliation and the need to rectify the national, national shame of being subject, subjugated by Western powers. That, too, is not driven by uh, Marxism-Leninism. To explain these aspects of China's conduct, one has to turn to Chinese nationalism. And by the way, the Chinese Communist Party is not shy about this. She, um, three volumes of Xi's speeches have been translated into uh, English. And in it, one can see consistently Xi, whatever the theoretical consistency, Xi ap appealing both emphatically to Marxism-Leninism, but also emphatically to Chinese nationalism, the Chinese dream of national uh, re rejuvenation. You see in a recent speech in 2019, Xi defining patriotism as devotion simultaneously to country, to party, and to socialism. Uh, Xi's speeches reflect the conduct of the People's Republic of uh, of China and and explain that conduct. That's why we uh, devote so much time to explicating the CCP's ideas. Peter, let me uh, jump in here with a question about your office, uh, because your office is uh, 
extremely important. Uh, you know, some listeners will know exactly what the policy planning staff is. Some won't. Uh, you know, you're mo- you sort of explicitly model your enterprise on George Kennan and his famous long telegram and his article on foreign affairs. Uh, and one thing came out of that, and, and, and you are in the long line of very many distinguished people who've held the office, like Walt Rostow and Robert Bowie back in the Eisenhower and Kennedy years. I just wanted to ask you, uh, and this was a debate that was touched off by uh, Kennan and has been the subject of scholars, is um, what is the right strategy? Once you understand the roots of Soviet conduct, there was a big debate that then occurred between people who thought um, the United States had to oppose and stop Russia, Soviet Union, everywhere in the world, the kind of universalist approach, um, which uh, uh, John Lewis Gaddis says reaches his high point with um, the Kennedy-Johnson years. Yes. Then there was a, an alternate school. These are both people reading both claim lineage back to Kennan. Then there's another school that said, no, it's not our job to try to oppose every expansion of the Soviet Union, or read here China everywhere in the world when they do something, and said we should be asymmetric. We should uh, only pick our battles, husband our resources, you know, thrust back at Russia or China in their vulnerable spots, but we can't take them on everywhere in the world. Uh, and that's kind of seen as the Eisenhower approach. Um, where, where do you and your report fall on that difference, or do you think there's something beyond that basic difference? And, that, and, that, and you, could, you could look at the dispute over Soviet policy in the Cold War as a fight between those two poles. Uh, do you think that we have a similar fight now about China? How do you, a China policy, how do you come uh, down on that? It's a, also, John, it's a, it's a great question. And, and the short sort of breezy answer is um, we don't take a stand um, on, on the concrete details of policy. Rather, we sketch a framework in which we believe that co- the debate about concrete policy can be intelligently conducted. After all, we think that we are roughly the same moment in regard to the China challenge as Kennan was in 46 and 47. Once again, those papers, um, contrary to a popular misconception, in those papers, the Long Telegram, the sources of, uh, sources of Soviet conduct, Kennan doesn't sketch a theory of containment. In the second, the source of Soviet conduct, he mentions containment two or three times, says we, we need to develop such a theory. His purpose in those uh, writings is to make sure that we understand the full dimension of the problem and underscores uh, the kind of, this is very important, educational efforts the United States must undertake to, to meet the challenge. So again, I, I really, uh, I don't mean to... Um, to dodge your question, but to say that um, this was sort of preliminary work. Now, having said that, uh, and, and Misha, uh, you alluded to it, I think, um, uh, maybe Misha, that, that the Trump administration actually has produced a number of uh, papers prior to ours, beginning with the 2017 um, National Security Strategy, which begin to develop concrete policy. The closest we come to uh, concrete policy in our 10 recommendations is, um, and I think it's uh, <clears throat> it, it's about the same level of concreteness as, uh, as Kennan, maybe goes into a bit more detail. So we say that the American conduct is going to have to be, for, let me back up. First, we emphasize 
the ways in which the uh, China challenge differs from the Soviet challenge. It is alike in the sense that if a major power driven by Marxism, nationalism and its own nationalism determined to transfigure world order uh, in ways that are hostile to individual freedom, constitutional democracy, national sovereignty. But the Soviets proceeded primarily by uh, by dint of military might. They held half of Europe uh, through force of their military. They exported Marxist revolution. They sent out proxies. They supported guerrilla warfare and so on. The Chinese, under the Chinese Communist Party, and I always must distinguish between the rulers, the Chinese Communist Party, and the people of China. Um, the Chinese Communist Party rules uh, by virtue of an extraordinary economy, still the world's second largest economy after the United States, and because of its tremendous economic clout, its might all all around the world. That means it represents a very different kind of challenge for uh, the United States, beginning with this observation, which affects our, um, our strategic calculations and our tactics. Every major economy in the world, including that of the United States, is entangled with that of, uh, of, uh, the, uh, of the People's Republic of China. The United States does a tremendous amount of business with, uh, um, with, with China, however unfair we may believe uh, trade relations to be. The same could be said of India, of South Korea, of Japan, of Australia, of Canada, of our friends in Europe, uh, our friends in South America, all around the world. Therefore, um, uh, our foreign policy needs to be one that combines containment, uh, uh, sorry, combines cooperation, containment, uh, and deterrence. What kind of cooperation, you might ask, with a, uh, a Chinese Communist Party whose rule seems to be inseparable from grave violations of the rule of law and grave abuses of human rights. Well, to, to say, and to say nothing of, um, of uh, their egregious misconduct in the fields of uh, trade, property, intellectual property, theft, and more about which we could speak. Um, we argue, consistent with other Trump administration documents, that the United States must look uh, to base its its cooperation, its its uh, commerce on norms of fairness and reciprocity. What does that mean? It means, for example, that uh, we should join with friends, partners, allies around the world to uh, adopt measures to prevent the Chinese from continuing to engage in what is undoubtedly the greatest theft in human history, that is the Chinese uh, continuing theft of intellectual property to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Just one example of um, reorienting the commerce that is inevitable for uh, uh, around norms of um, of fairness and and reciprocity. Some people spoke of decoupling. Um, To my mind, this is a misleading word. Why? Because in English, decoupling still, uh, to my ear at least, sounds binary. You're coupled or you're decoupled. 
We should reduce reliance on the Chinese for sure, because one of its schemes is to um, essentially commandeer key supply chains and uh, and acquire control over essential materials and goods. We should seek, you might speak of uh, targeted decoupling. Uh, you can speak of reducing reliance on the Chinese. I think for, uh, for many Americans, uh, actually for many Europeans, for countries around the world, uh, China's conduct uh, uh, during the global pandemic, uh, setting aside for the moment its, um, its role in covering up the pandemic, but its, uh, its use and abuse of global supply chains has been a wake-up call, which has uh, given us all um, impetus to uh, to, to reorganize these supply chains and make sure that we uh, have have better control over essential materials and goods. So I'm sorry I'm wandering a bit, but the bottom line is this. The purpose of our paper is to help us conduct this most necessary debate uh, intelligently, intelligently with a better historical understanding, a better understanding of China's conduct in all regions of the world, and a better understanding of uh, of, of the ideas that motivate the Chinese Communist Party and of China's ultimate ambitions. Let me uh, ask you one more following up on your uh, answer about the difficulties of you know, wrestling with an opponent, a rival who's so entangled with our economy, which is, uh, you could think of Kennan, uh, again, like people argue about what Kennan even meant and the implications of his thoughts for uh, foreign policy and one school thought, I think in the end, he kind of attached himself more to this in later years, was the idea that behind containment was that it would not be aggressive towards uh, the Soviet Union, that you would, by containing the Soviet Union, eventually it would exhaust itself, right? That, uh, and I think this was, you know, underlying the idea of Kissinger and detente too, is that you didn't have to do more than just stop expansion, because eventually the Soviet system would just collapse of its own internal contradictions. Uh, to me, it sounds like China, the end point of our strategy here that you're proposing, doesn't have something like that in mind because China's economy is humming along. They seem to be in control of their population. Uh, will China actually exhaust itself in the way the Soviets did? It's harder to see that happening. Um, if that's not going to, and, and, and as you say, we, we're still going to be coexisting in terms of the economy. In some ways, we help them by opening Western markets. And economy. So what is that actual, um, what is the end state going to look like if it's not going to be the same thing as Kennan's, let the Soviets just exhaust themselves, and then they'll just internally collapse? Yes. So, uh, yes, Kennan does toss off that line in uh, sources of uh, Soviet conduct. Um, it, you know, it's it's not clear how much that analysis informed the various schools that, uh, that that you've already described. But it certainly seemed to us on the policy planning staff that it was um, would be both premature and arrogant to suppose that uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which is uh, which we haven't spoken about them, yeah, subject to various vulnerabilities, but to count on their collapse anytime soon. Um, we do have a goal, though. We identify the goal very, uh, very clearly in the paper. And that is, uh, it is a uh, short-term, intermediate-term, and also long-term goal. That is preserving a certain kind of international order. Uh, 
It's the international order that came into being, that was brought into being by the United States with friends and partners after World War II. It's an international order that is based upon uh, sovereign nation states, which is based on uh, free and sovereign nation states, grounded in respect for, uh, for human rights. It's, a, it's an international order that can, um, uh, can survive various kinds of uh, authoritarian powers. Now, is it possible? Is it possible that by bringing to bear certain kinds of pressures, the United States um, can make life more difficult for the Chinese Communist Party? Well, it's, as you know, it's certainly been part of the uh, policy of the United States State Department under Secretary uh, State Pompeo to call China out for its grotesque abuses of human rights. Um, nobody has been more outspoken in his criticism of the imprisoning of something like one million uh, Muslim Uyghurs in re-education camps in Western China than Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Uh, I don't know of any world leader who has been more outspoken in uh, in, the, in China's crushing of freedom contrary to its international obligations in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, I don't know of other countries that have done more, especially in the last year, to signal their support for, um, for Taiwan. So um, will these actions, which are, uh, all of which are guided by a respect for individual freedom, but nevertheless recognize the realities of, um, of Chinese power, um, will these have an effect on uh, on uh, on China's internal governance? Maybe they will, uh, but the United States, it seems, it seemed to us, has to be prepared. Um, has to be prepared for the CCP maintaining power for a long time to come. And under those circumstances, we have to be clear that the character of the international order is not negotiable. So, Peter, let me. Um build off of some of what you've been talking about with John, I'd, I'd like to ask you two questions in, in the time we have left. The first is, um, again, maybe to drill down a little bit more into how um, the ideas in this paper have been translated into policy or vice versa, the policies that the administration was following you know, made that made it into the the paper. I mean, it's it's one thing to have strategies. It's one thing to have uh, aspirational documents. Uh, but But how did it you know, actually, as as you look on handing over a baton, where would you say you are in terms of policy implementation? And the second one, I'd like to ask you on responses to the paper, reaction to the paper, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, people, others in government, in terms of um, uh, academics and, and scholars who've looked at, uh, looked at questions like this uh, among the Kenan Cognoscenti, if there are any out there, you know, looking at this follow <laughs> on. So, so why don't we start though with the idea of, of how this has been or was, or maybe will be translated into policy. Yes. Well, um, here's, here's one quick answer. Um, there is a, there is a tendency, uh, not only among uh, intellectuals, but among policymakers to, to search for the one key, the word that will capture the approach People will want to know, okay, are you recommending a policy of uh, containment, of cooperation, of deterrence, of rollback, of detente? Give us your word, and then we'll understand the policy. And uh, if this paper stands, 
for any approach or has a has a larger message about the policy debate it is that the peculiar character of the china challenge is going to requires us to weave together elements of all these schools uh, this has to do with china's uh, size it has to do with china's power it has to do with the sphere the spheres in which the china challenge is primarily unfolding uh, those are international institutions and countries around the world it has to do with uh, the might of the chinese military no one of these schools or approaches uh, is is adequate and moreover i, I think uh, you could say that um, this sensibility which is nevertheless um, very clear about what our interest is and what our goal is. Our interest is uh, preserve in the first place, preser preserving freedom at home. And our goal in foreign policy should be uh, working with friends and allies to preserve, an, to preserve an international order that is friendly to free and sovereign nation states. Um, while we're clear about that, we, we recognize that this is there are going to be multiple dimensions and that we're going to have to uh, uh, that we will need uh, talented uh, statesmen and stateswomen to strike the proper balance. Uh, as far as reactions to the paper goes, well, um, uh, you know, quick out of the gate uh, in uh, denouncing our paper was the Chinese Communist Party, which. Uh, um, uh, condemned us as uh, um, unworthy of the memory of George Kennan. They remember George Kennan and uh, uh, disparaged us as as living fossils of the uh, the Cold War. Not running dog imperialists. No, yes, I guess they had forgotten that living fossils of the of the Cold War. Senator Tom Cotton um, uh, then tweeted out that. Uh, uh, that's not living fossils of the Cold War. That's living victors of the Cold War. Uh, and, and Senator Cotton was, uh, was correct. Um, in the United States, it's very interesting. Um, we, we've gotten a, a, a lot of juvenile taunts to the effect that we, the members of the policy planning staff, and I should emphasize this paper is a product of the policy planning staff, um, uh, saying that, uh, you know, we... We failed in this way or that way to uh, to to live up to the achievement of uh, of George of George Kennan. Um, but what were the uh, the truth is the um, uh, we have not encountered to this point any serious criticism of uh, of of the main points of our uh, of our analysis. We have been criticized because we haven't. We didn't develop a comprehensive theory, um, a comprehensive policy for meeting the China challenge, even though we were quite specific, uh, quite explicit, I should say, in the opening of the paper, that our job in policy planning staff was to step back and, and give a broader view. And even though uh, I think if you uh, I think we um, um, go a fair ways in, in describing, as I said to John, a kind of framework within which intelligent debate about uh, about concrete policy can be uh, can be undertaken. Um, you know, uh, uh, we it was said that um, we didn't pay enough attention to what needs to be done at home, 
to uh, bolster the United States to take on the China challenge. And yet fully five of the 10 recommendations that we give in the paper uh, deal with um, uh, bolstering freedom at home, uh, bolstering the economy, uh, restoring civic concord, which, uh, as Kenan also pointed out, is absolutely essential to meeting a foreign policy challenge. Uh, and we focus on educating a new um, uh, a new cohort of, uh, of foreign policy experts. We need them. Uh, we need a new group as we ne- as we needed in the 1950s. We needed experts who spoke Russian. We need experts who speak uh, who speak Mandarin today. And we need real fluency so that you can operate in uh, operate with documents and conduct conversations, read newspapers. We need to educate the American public uh, about the China challenge. And indeed, um, as events, uh, in my judgment, of the last year have shown, we need to um, educate the American public in the principles of um, American freedom and in America's constitutional tradition, because um, uh, these are also under uh, under assault at at home so these are these are actually some fairly concrete policy recommendations to um to fortify the united states for what is likely to be a long struggle ahead well peter as as we wrap up and i i turn it over to john to to say the final goodbye i I just want to reiterate the last point that you made about the training that we need as a uh, a veteran of the end of the Cold War Russia mm-hmm. studies community, hence the nickname Misha, as my friends know, mm-hmm. uh, we are way, way behind where we were in terms of the training. And it's not just linguistic, though that is absolutely crucial. It is that holistic training. Yes. Uh, it's not the DC, you know, you did a few years on a desk here and there. It's studying the literature and the religion and the history and the culture and the sociology and the political system, all of it, so that you can get as as uh, as fidelity as much of a fidelity to the to what's going on in China as possible. And we are still, I would say, a decade or two behind where we need to be. So I just want to reiterate the importance of the area studies approach that you've just talked about here uh, in this fascinating discussion. And to um, to finish us up, let me turn it over to John. Thanks a lot. And uh, thank Peter so much for uh, joining us today. And that's uh, great to see you. Uh, and it would be great to see you soon back at the uh, yes. Hoover uh, before Indeed. too long. <laughs> I hope, I'm sure you can't wait to get back out. So it's 65 and sunny right now, as usual, as it is you, every day. You lucky guy. <laughs> it's almost that here in D.C. It's, it's I just, just want to mention for those who can't see, you know, we get the the pleasure of video for this. And uh, I see Peter has got his fluorescent tan going. I mean, he's trapped in some hole deep in some <laughs> federal building with uh, <laughs> nondescript furniture. Exactly right. He needs to get out possible. <laughs> exactly. So uh, let me say on behalf of uh, Misha and I, thanks everybody for joining us for another edition of the Pacific Century. And uh, we look forward to uh, having you all back for our next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.